Section four of I Am a Cat by Natsume Sosaki, translated by Kanichi Ando. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter two continued. Well, Professor, I have a favor to ask of you, and therefore gave myself the pleasure of calling on you. Mr. Tofu broke the silence in an altered tone, drinking up the cold tea before him. "'Aha! What is it?' returned my master, assuming as consequential a look as the other. "'You see, I am very fond of the arts and literature, and—' "'That's very good,' encouraged my master. "'A number of us having the same tastes have started a recitation society. We are to meet once a month with the object of improving ourselves in that line of culture, and the first meeting was actually held at the end of last year. Just tell me what you mean by your recitation society. Is it a sort of elocutionary exhibition, in which they recite selections of prose and poetry, practicing modulations of the voice? Well, yes, that's about it. We mean to begin with productions from ancient authors, gradually coming down to modern works, including the original compositions of our members. Do you mean by productions from ancient authors, such as Biwako by Hakurakuten? No. Are they then such as Shumpu Bate no Kyoku by Busan? No. Pray, what style of work was chosen at the last meeting? A tragedy by Chikamatsu. Chikamatsu? Do you mean that dramatist? There existed but one Chikamatsu in the world. The name suggests at once the identical Chikamatsu, the dramatist. I thought my master very stupid to question the fact which is as clear as day. But in blissful ignorance he was stroking my head tenderly. In this world of blunders, however, where there are some who rush to interpret a glance from a squint-eyed lady as something sweetly significant, such an instance as this might not be deemed striking after all. Thus thinking, I allowed him, in happy content, to stroke on. "'Yes, I do,' replied Mr. Tofu, looking into my master's face. "'Was it delivered by a single man, or did many take part?' We had it performed by several, each representing one character. The first principle we aim at is to have deep sympathy with the characters of a work, so that we may reveal their individualities. To this we add gestures. In the case of a dialogue, we attach great importance to exhibiting persons belonging to a particular age. For instance, if the part of a young lady or an apprentice is to be played, we must try to appear really as such. Then it is little different from a theatrical performance. Yes, only there are no proper costumes or scenes in our case. Excuse my asking you, but was your effort successful? Well, yes, I should say it was a success, considering we performed for the first time. And what sort of tragedy was it that you had last time? It was the scene of a boatman carrying an okyaku to Yoshiwara. "'What a scene, to be sure!' exclaimed the worthy educationist, shaking his head slightly. A puff of smoke of Hinode wound about my ear, and then came round my cheek. "'No, sir, it was not so unusual. 
and the dramatis personae comprised only Okyaku, Boatman, Oiran, Nakai, Yarite, and Kemban, said Mr. Tofu in a calm voice. At the word Oiran my master made a wry face, but the terms Nakai, Yarite, and Kemban being evidently beyond the reach of his conception, he soon proposed a series of questions. Is a Nakai a maid of a brothel? I have not yet made inquiry, but I think a Nakai is a maid of a waiting-house, while a Yarite is something like an assistant in a brothel. Mr. Tofu declared a moment ago that each character was to be represented as near to life as possible. Notwithstanding this, he seemed to lack definite knowledge of the office of a Yarite and a Nakai. Now I understand what these two kinds of women are. My next question is about a Kemban. Does it indicate a human being or some particular place? And taking it to be a human being, is it a man or a woman? If I am not mistaken, it is a human being, a man. And what is his office? Well, I have not yet extended my investigation that far, but I will make inquiry by and by. I felt pretty sure that a dialogue participated in by such a performer would end in a farce. I lifted my eye just to see how my master looked. There was a sober expression on his countenance. And what were the other reciters? They were of different professions. The part of an Oiran was played by Mr. K. B. A. It was rather queer to hear him, a gentleman with a moustache, drawl in an effeminate tone. Besides, there was a scene in which the Oiran was to fall into a swoon, and— Was it required, even in a recitation, to go so far as that? asked my master anxiously. Yes, you know, expressive gestures are very important after all, returned Mr. Tofu, with the air of a man thoroughly versed in the details of the stage. Did the swooning come off successfully? was my master's pointed question. No, it was a failure at the first meeting, as pointedly answered the visitor. And what was your role? asked my master. Boatman. Played the part of a boatman, you say? My master's tone sounded as much as to say, if you could represent a boatman, even I could have been equal to act the part of such as a Kemban. And was the boatman well acted? asked my master point-blank. Mr. Tofu did not seem to take offence. His tone was as calm as ever when he said, the undertaking went up like a rocket and came down like a stick through the failure of the boatman. To tell the truth, there lodged next door to where we met four or five blue stockings, who found out somehow or other that we were going to hold a meeting of recitation. They came under the window and were evidently watching our performance. As I began to feel gradually at home in the imitation of a boatman, I became spirited and encouraged, and was just getting into full swing, when a roar of laughter burst upon my ear. Perhaps I gesticulated too freely, and made it hard for them to keep their countenance. Oh, but I was taken aback! How abashed I was! After this sudden interruption, I could not go on smoothly, do what I would, and the meeting was abruptly broken up. Mr. Tofu avowed a few moments ago that the recitation society had made a good start. 
How could he see it in that light? On the contrary, I could picture to myself the sorry plight in which the meeting had been closed. I made an effort to look grave, but in vain. My hyoid would roll in spite of myself. My master stroked me on the head more and more tenderly. I experienced a strange sensation of gratitude and uneasiness at being thus caressed for laughing at his guest. What a mishap! condoled my master. He began his new year with a word of condolence. We are going to try our best to make the second meeting a more splendid and worthy one. To tell the truth, I called on you today, Professor, with no other object than to ask you to join us and help to further the interests of the society. But such a swooning is beyond my power. My master, who was always of an inactive spirit, was going at once to withhold his assent. No, you are not called upon to do such things. Here is a list containing the names of the supporters, said Mr. Tofu, taking out a small octavo volume, importantly from a purple wrapper, which he opened and placed before my master. I should be happy if you would kindly add your signature and seal to this. I saw in this book, arranged in good order, a list of the names of well-known M.A.s and B.A.s of the time. Well, I may as well become a supporter, but first tell me what obligation I am to enter upon, asked the sluggish professor in an anxious mood. You are not necessarily bound to do anything in particular. It would be enough for us if you would grant us the favor of adding your name to the list in token of your approval. Then I will accept your proposal, said my master in a lighter tone, now that he was informed that he was to be under no obligation. His face indicated that he would even sign a compact for a rebellion, with the one condition that he should not incur any responsibility. It was really a notable occasion for my master to have his name recorded side by side with renowned men of letters of today, a great honor, which would seldom, if ever, fall to his lot again. No wonder his words had a merry jingle in them. "'Excuse me a minute,' said my master, dropping me off his knee and going into his study for his seal. Mr. Tofu took this advantage to pick up a piece of sponge-cake from the cake-dish, which he crammed into his mouth in a jiffy. For a time his jaws moved in a heavy, uneasy manner. The sight reminded me of the mochi that went hard with me that morning. By the time the sponge-cake had been made away with by the guest, my master came out of his study, seal in hand. He was apparently unaware that one piece of cake was missing from the dish, or I should have become the first object of his suspicion. When my master entered his study again after Mr. Tofu had gone, he found a letter from Mr. Mayte waiting on his table. "'I wish you a happy new year!' My master thought the letter was begun with unusual formality, for he had seldom received one of serious nature from that gentleman. To give an example, the one he sent the other day was to the following effect. Just a few lines to inform you that I am now enjoying peaceful days for the most part, as no girls have fallen in love with me, nor disturbed me with love-letters since I saw you last. 
I beg you, therefore, to set your mind at ease. Compared with the note foregoing, the one in question was exceptionally conventional. Contrary to the negative policy which you always hold, I have taken measures as positive as possible to greet the dawn of an unusually glorious new year. Just imagine how busy I am every day. I have actually no time to look you up. My master inwardly admitted this true, thinking a man of his disposition would have a run of jollifications at this special season of the year. Yesterday I stole a little of my busy time to treat Mr. Tofu to Tochimembo, but as ill luck would have it, they were out of materials for the dish. It was a thousand pities that the circumstance frustrated my intention. The letter was resuming its usual strain by degrees, thought my master, and a smile flitted over his face. I am going to attend Baron A.'s card-party to-morrow, and the day after a New Year's banquet of the Aesthetic Society, and the day after a welcome meeting for Professor Toribay, and the day after... My master skipped over a few lines with an exclamation of nuisance. As you see, I shall have to put in an appearance at a series of meetings, such as of Utai, Haiku, Tanka, Shintaishi, and what not, so that I have many irons in the fire for the present. This accounts for this letter of greetings. Do not take it amiss, if you please, that I am unable to go and see you. You are not necessarily required to come to see me, said my master, as if in reply to the letter. It is long since we sat at the same table, so I mean to have you dine with me next time you come. There will be nothing special to please you, but I will see that you have at least the dish of Tochimembo. Pish! The old fox is still at Tochimembo, cried my master, who was offended a little. In case the dish should fail to be prepared on account of the recent scarcity of materials, I will try to treat you to the tongues of peacocks. Ah, he has an alternative in reserve, said my master, who was curious to read on. As you know, the quantity of that particular delicacy obtainable from one peacock is not half as large as your little finger. So, in order to satisfy an appetite like yours, "'Stuff and nonsense!' rapped out my master. "'I must get at least thirty of them. "'Though we find a few of these birds at the zoo, "'or Hanayashiki in Asakusa Park, "'the worst of it is they are not to be obtainable "'at common bird-fanciers, "'and I am very much troubled about it.' "'You are troubling yourself unasked,' said my master, "'not a bit thankful.' The cooking of peacock's tongues was once in great prevalence among the ancient Romans when they were in their best days. Imagine! I always thought it the height of luxury, and my mouth often waters at the thought. Imagine! Hang it! cried my master, in a very cold tone. Later, in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, peacock was an indispensable item of delicary on the public table throughout the whole of Europe. If I remember correctly, the same birds were served by the Earl of Leicester when he invited Queen Elizabeth to Kenilworth Castle. In a picture of a banquet by Rembrandt, a famous painter, a peacock with its beautiful tail-covered spread is represented lying on the table. 
Seems he is not so busy after all, complained my master, when he has time to pen the history of the cooking of peacocks. Be it as it may, with the succession of feasts I am having of late, I have good reason to fear that I, however strong, shall one day find myself weakened in my digestive organs as you are. How dare he say, as you are, as if I were a living specimen of indigestion, murmured my master. According to historians, the Romans are said to have feasted twice or thrice a day. Now, if a man sits down to a sumptuous repast so often, he is sure to get his digestive organs out of order, however strong they may be. And the result is indigestion, such as you have. As you again! rude beast they went deep into the question however of reconciling luxury with health in fact they thought it necessary to indulge in an extraordinary quantity of delicious food and at the same time to keep their digestive organs in normal condition and they succeeded in finding out the secret that's strange said my master with a sudden flush of eagerness on his face they made it a rule to take a bath after dinner, and then by way of cleansing the stomach they practiced vomiting according to a certain manner. After they had made a clean sweep of all its contents, they would sit again at the table and play a good knife and fork at luxurious meals. Then they went over the same procedure. By this means they managed to satisfy their cravings and still keep the digestive function as active as ever. I consider this a good example of killing two birds with one stone. Yes, it's killing two birds with one stone, observed my master with an envious look. It goes without saying that the twentieth century is an age of active human intercourse with a decided increase of public entertainments. It is particularly the case with the rising nation of the East which has now entered into the second year of Japan-Russia war. I believe it is high time for us, victorious people, to get to work in earnest, to discover at any cost the art of keeping the digestive organs in order, after the manner of the old Romans. For I fear very much, lest the mighty nation with its brilliant prospects should be reduced in the near future to dyspeptics such as you are now as you are again. He is really provoking. I think it is the duty of those acquainted with the manners and customs of western lands to institute research into old histories and traditions, and recover the secret method in question from oblivion, and introduce it into the community of the Meiji era. By this means they can attain the double end of nipping the trouble in the bud and paying the debt of the indulgent life they have led. Things are assuming a strange aspect, said my master, shaking his head. With this object in view, I have for some time been dipping into the works of Gibbon, Momsen, Smith, etc. My effort has been so far discouraging, I am sorry to say, not a clue having been found to any discovery. But, as you know, I am not a man to scotch the snake and not to kill it. When I once try my hand at anything, I am never at rest until I give the finishing touch to it. 
I have no doubt, therefore, that before long I shall have the satisfaction of seeing an effective vomiting method re-established. You may rest assured that I will let you know as soon as I find it out. Such being the case, I should like to put off, if possible, my invitation to the dishes of Tochimembo and Peacock's tongues mentioned before, until after my discovery. Trusting this arrangement will be equally convenient to you, who are actually suffering from indigestion. Sincerely yours, Mayte. Dear me, I've again nibbled at the bait, said my master. His way of writing was so serious that I was prompted to read it all through. Mayte is a great idler, he continued, smiling, to play such a trick at the very beginning of a new year. Four or five days have passed away since then, without the occurrence of any event worth mentioning. The daffodil in the white vase began to wither gradually, and a dwarf plum-tree with its green stem followed to bloom slowly in its small pot. The flowers were attractive, but I soon grew weary of staying at home all day and looking at them. Therefore I went out to see Miss Mike once or twice. Neither time could I see her. At my first call I thought her absent, but at the second I learned that she was laid up with an illness, for I overheard the following conversation between the music-teacher and her maid, from the shade of the hodden growing near the washstand. "'Has Mike taken any nourishment?' "'No, she has eaten nothing since morning. I made her sleep snug and warm by the hearth.' The treatment was more becoming a human creature than a cat. On one hand I felt deeply my own lot and envied her, but on the other I experienced some joy in finding that the cat I loved was so kindly treated. "'That's too bad. Loss of appetite pulls one down awfully, you know.' "'Quite true, ma'am. Even I am unfit for work on the day following a fast.' The maid made this reply as if a cat were a being superior to herself. In reality, the cat seemed to be a more important member of this household. "'Have you given her medical attendance?' "'Yes, ma'am, but the doctor was a very curious man. When I went into his office with Mike in my arms, he asked me if I had caught cold and was about to feel my pulse. I told him that not I but the cat was the patient and made Mike sit up on my knee. "'I don't know how to doctor a cat,' he said, smiling a strange smile. Leave it alone, and it will soon get well. He was too unkind. Of course I got angry, and said I would not again request him to treat her, and that he knew not how dear the creature was to its owner. Then I took Mike in my arms again, and hurried off. Huninay! Is not Huninay elegant? I hardly expect to hear such an expression from my folk, it only comes from the lips of such venerable ladies as have distant relationship to Tenshoin. Hark! Isn't she breathing hard? Yes, ma'am. Surely she is having a bad attack of influenza and sore throat. Anyone is likely to get one's throat hurt by coughing when one has caught cold. Her language was absurdly polite. Perhaps it was suitable to a maid of the dame who was a distant relation to Tenshoin. And we have of late a malady which goes by the name of consumption, you know. 
Yes, ma'am, indeed we shall have to keep a sharp lookout when such new diseases as consumption or pest are steadily increasing in number as of late. There's practically nothing good among things which are unknown in the Tokugawa shogunate. Therefore you must have your eyes open. Really, I must, ma'am, said the maid, with deep emotion. You said just now that her pet had caught cold, but she has not gone out very often for rambles, has she? Well, yes, she has, ma'am. You know, she has had a bad playmate lately, said the maid, with consequential looks, as if she were about to disclose a state secret. Bad playmate? Yes, it is a dirty male cat owned by a teacher living on the front block. Do you mean that teacher who makes such a rude gruff noise every morning? Yes, I do. The same man who gaggles whenever he washes his face, like a goose about to be hung. The simile used by the maid was apt. My master has a habit of producing a strange noise by thrusting the stem of his toothbrush into his throat when he gargles in the bathroom every morning. When in ill humor, he gaggles desperately. When in good humor, he gaggles louder than usual with redoubled vigor. So his noisy gaggling is heard all the same, no matter in what state of humor he is. According to my mistress, her husband did not have that habit until just before the family removed to the present house. It was by mere chance, so she says, that one bright morning he began that practice, which he has followed ever since with remarkable regularity. It is anything but a desirable habit, and why he steadily sticks to it is more than I can understand. Returning to my personal concern, to call me a dirty cat was too much. I still pricked up my ears and listened to their conversation. I wonder what good he gets from his gaggling noise. In the good days of the shogunate, even a chugun or a zoritori used to observe respectable manners to a certain extent. In fact, there was not to be found a man in any quarter of samurai's residences who made such an odious noise when washing his face. It may well be imagined, ma'am. The maid was all attention, chiming in with occasional ma'ams. A cat owned by such a master cannot possibly be a good one. Give it to him next time he comes near us. Oh, yes, ma'am, I'll beat him to a mummy. He is chiefly responsible for our pet's illness, I am sure. I'll revenge him without fail. What a charge, to be sure! Being aware of the great danger to which I was now exposed, I judiciously retraced my steps towards home, without meeting Miss Mikay. When I came home, I found my master in his study, absorbed in reflection, with pen in hand. Had I informed him of the conversation between the two women, how his blood would have boiled! But in blissful ignorance he was giving himself the air of a Milton. Nevertheless, his distracted looks showed that he was not well up in what he was about. Just then in came Mr. Maytay. His sudden appearance was rather astonishing. It was only three or four days ago that he sent my master the letter containing the season's greetings, in which he remarked that he could not come for the time being as he was very busy. 
composing a shintaishi, eh? Let's have a look if you've got a good one. No, I found a piece of good prose, so I thought I would translate it. My master opened his lips reluctantly. A good piece of prose? By whose pen? I do not know. Anonymous, then. We may as well pay due attention to anonymous writings, in which we find not unfrequently some of notable literary value. Where did you get it, pray? From a second reader, answered my master, as calm as calm could be. Second reader, did you say? What has become of it? I meant to say that the piece I am translating was found in a second reader. No joke, sir. You are going to take me unawares in order to return the compliment for my peacock's tongues. No thank you, sir. I am not a brag like you, said my master, twirling his moustache with admirable coolness. An old story is told of Sanyo, who, when asked by a man if he had recently found an exemplary composition, said, producing a horse-driver's done for a debt, I think this an admirable composition. Your appreciation may perhaps be as accurate and correct as that of Sanyo. Now, read your translation, and I will criticize for you, said Mr. Meite, with the looks of the greatest authority on aesthetics. Giant gravitation, began my master, with a peculiar intone like that of a rector. What's that? That's the heading, you know. What a strange heading! I cannot understand it. It signifies a giant with the name of gravitation. The significance is rather vague, but never mind. Since it's a heading, I will take it for granted. Now, go on to the main subject. It is a treat to me, as you have a musical voice. None of your blarney. With this preliminary warning, my master went on as follows. Kate looked out of the window. She saw the boys playing ball. They tossed the ball into the air. Up, up it went. Then down it came. They tossed it up again and again. It fell every time. What makes the ball come down? said Kate. Why doesn't it keep going up? I will tell you, said Mama. A giant lives down in the earth. He is giant gravitation. He is very strong. He draws everything toward him. He holds the house down. If he did not, it would fly away. He keeps the children from flying away, too. Did you ever see the leaves falling? Giant gravitation is calling them. Did you ever drop your books? Giant gravitation said, Come. The ball goes up into the air. Giant gravitation calls. Then it comes down. Is that all? Yes. Isn't it fine? Dear, dear, I am utterly defeated. I little thought you would pay me back in my own coin like that. Nothing of the sort. I only undertook the translation as I really thought it worth while. You think so too, don't you? said my master, looking into the other's face, which shone behind the gold-rimmed glasses. I am struck with amazement. I never dreamed you were so smart. I confess I am completely taken in this time. So I must haul down my colors. Mr. Meite wagged his tongue self-complacently, 
leaving my master quite at sea. I did not mean in any sense to have the better of you. I simply translated the composition as I thought it capital, and nothing more. Yes, it's capital indeed. You could not have done better. It's marvelous. I am lost in admiration. You need not be so much amazed. You see, I've given up my watercoloring lately, and have got it into my head to be a bit of a writer instead. Far better than your painting, with neither perspective nor chiaroscuro. It's by far the better plan. Your praise is very encouraging. My master was taking the shadow for the substance to the last. Good afternoon, said Mr. Kangetsu, who at that moment came into the room. Good afternoon. I've just listened to a wonderful masterpiece of composition, which completely routed the ghost of Toshimembo. Mr. Meite gave utterance to this vague suggestion. Oh, is that so? said the newcomer, although not knowing what was meant. The other day a man called Ochi Tofu called on me with your letter of introduction, said my master, who alone retained sedate looks. Oh, did he? He is an honest good fellow, this Ochikochi, but a little eccentric in his way, so I feared you would find him a bother. But as he insisted upon being introduced to you... Well, no, he was not. Did he undertake any explanation with regard to his name? No, I do not remember his doing any of the kind. Didn't he, really? He is used to lecturing on his own name to anyone with whom he is newly acquainted. And what does he say? put in Mr. Maytay, who was looking for something new to occur. He takes much to heart to hear his name read Tofu according to Chinese pronunciation. You don't say so, exclaimed Mr. Maytay, taking a pinch of tobacco out of his leather tobacco pouch of golden color. He will at once insist that his name is Ochikochi, not Ochitofu. That's strange, isn't it? said Mr. Maytay, inhaling deeply the fumes of Kumoi. And that entirely comes from his enthusiasm for literature. Ochi and Kochi form the idiom far and near, besides they rhyme with each other. This is the point he is proud of. They do not appreciate what pains I took with my name, he will complain, when they pronounce it tofu by mistake. I see he is really eccentric, rejoined Mr. Meite, with a look of lively interest. As he said so, he undertook to exhale through his nostrils the smoke he had inhaled. But the smoke had gone down so far that it missed its way, and sticking in the smoker's throat caused him to cough violently. When he called on me the other day, said my master, smiling, he told me that he had played the part of a boatman at the first meeting of the recitation society, and made himself the laughing-stock of the blue stockings who had been watching the proceedings. Oh, yes, that's just what I was going to say, ejaculated Mr. Maytay, tapping his knee with his pipe. Thinking it dangerous to stay near him, I withdrew to a safe distance. Yes, yes, that recitation society. He referred to it when we went to a restaurant for Tochimambo. 
I remember, he said, that they were going to hold the second meeting on a large scale, inviting a number of eminent men of letters, and he cordially requested my attendance. I asked him if he meant to have another drama by Chikamatsu. No, he said, we have chosen quite an up-to-date work for our next performance, that is to say, the Konjiki Yasha. Upon my inquiry of his role, he said he was to represent Omiya, the heroine. Tofu playing the part of Omiya. It will be very amusing, I am sure. I must not fail to put in an appearance and cheer him. Yes, I have no doubt of its being a sight, said Mr. Kangetsu with a queer smile. But he is true and honest in the perfect sense of the word, not a bit of a humbug. It's a credit to him. He is of quite a different stamp from men like Meitei put in my master, paying off the old scores all at once, for Andrea del Sarto, Peacock's Tongues, and Toshi Mambo. But Mr. Meitei remained apparently cool and indifferent before this retaliation. Yes, you know, I belong to the class of man called Gyotoku no Manaita, returned he, laughing. I should say you are something like that, said my master. In reality, he was ignorant of the significance of the slang. But as teacher, he was long accustomed to covering up his ignorance or fault some way or other. And the use of this art was not merely confined to the classroom, being applied to social transactions as well, whenever occasion required. What is meant by Gyotoku no Manaita? inquired Mr. Kangetsu frankly. The daffodil you see there, broke in my master, casting a hasty glance towards the alcove, was bought on my way back from a bathhouse at the close of last year, and was stuck in the vase by my own hand. Isn't it very durable? He made a desperate effort to check the course of the conversation concerning the slang. Talking of the close of the year, I had a singular experience towards the end of last year said Mr. Meite, turning round his pipe on the tip of his nimble fingers like a juggler. "'An experience? Let us hear it,' proposed my master, who drew a long breath, now that he had had the talk on the slang scattered to the wind. End of Section 4